People always ask how I balance my family life with 400 shows a year. I'm just doing what I love with the people I love. It's my magic life. I like Wes Isley. I like everything about him. All right. This podcast has been, oh man, a year in the making. Um, And I've said it before. I'll say it again. We have a legend in magic with us today. If you've ever seen a school show magician, if you've ever seen a library magician in your life, they're probably doing one of these guys' routines. This guy has made a name for uh, being one of the biggest school show performers in the world. He's actually written the book on it. A couple books, I do believe. Everybody, it's Dave again. What's up, buddy? How are you, sir? I'm awake, alert, alive. What can I tell you? Hey, that's all we can ask. That's all we can ask. Man, this thing, we've been talking about doing this, I think, beginning of this year, beginning of last year, and it just schedule-wise. And some of us stay home and some of us go on the road. Yeah, it gets uh, crazy trying to book it. We have 183 shows this summer, so trying to get these shows to work and trying to get... Because I want to be um, uh, conscientious to my helpers, my my guests' schedule, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't want to just say, hey, we only record at 5 o'clock. We have this spot available from 2 p.m. till 12 p.m. Can you do a spot in there? Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to make it easy. <laughs> but, yeah. What? what? 2 p.m. to midnight is what you're trying to say, not... 12 p.m., but that's okay. Okay, all right. Anyway, anyway, she's corrected me. Uh Anyway, Dave, again, I have known you my entire life. I got the pleasure to work with you at a magic convention uh, a few years ago. You uh, sent my girl home with lots of memories. Work in a trade show booth, working in a booth at a convention can be boring, and you always looked over at her, and you did little, you know, you did magic with her and for her. And as a father, I can't thank you enough. It meant the world to me seeing one of my heroes do magic for my little girl. But then I saw the face of her. Dude, it was awesome. Thank you. What can I say? I, I, I tend, wherever I go, if I have the opportunity, I like to play with children. You know, just like, you know, if I see a child in the uh, post office uh, doing this or that, you know, I have the tendency to, uh, you know, if if I if I have a coin in my, my pocket, I'll reach and pull a quarter out of the kid's ear. Uh, since the pandemic, we don't seem to have many coins in our pockets because everybody's gone to uh, using the plastic card. So, uh, where do you want to begin? Let's begin. <laughs> let's begin with your beginning. How did you get started in magic? What was your first experience? This is what I say to people. I am the product of a hobby that turned into an occupation. I have a friend named Marty Walden, and we're not going to worry about that. I can't stop it. That's more. It's right behind where we're working. So, this is one of my five spam callers every single day. All right, well, we got four more. They don't. Let's not call him back. Let's not call him back. Let me start over because I, I seriously thought this out. I'm the product of a hobby that turned into an occupation. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I read my first magic books when I was uh, 12 years old, almost 12 years old. And uh, in fact, the first one I read was called The First Book of Magic by uh, Edward Stoddard. And I have three copies on the shelf behind me. And I've shown them to people and used them in, in programs. And and then my friend Marty Walden showed up at my house one Saturday after a scout meeting the week before, and he had a box of tricks. So he showed them to me, and then I said, well, there's a, a boy across the street. He's older than we are. He's like a 17-year-old teenager. And he showed me some magic tricks several years ago and fooled me. So we went over there to ask him about it. He showed them to us. And he ended up giving me those three tricks. Um, as, I, as I reminisce about this, uh, those first three tricks 
that he gave me. Those are the first three tricks I ever owned. Uh, one was a small plastic set of cups and balls like this. SS Adams had little yellow, uh, what do you call it, knitted balls to go with it. And uh, then he gave me a Siberian chain escape. Wow. Everybody That's a good one. He, he taught me how to do the cut and restored rope. So there I had some tricks. My friend Marty had some, and we put on a show. And then we started reading magic books from the library. And we started buying little uh, 25 and 50 cent tricks. And then in Atlanta, there was a magic shop called the Trick Novelty Shop on Peachtree Street in downtown Atlanta. We could actually take a bus down there and go to that shop. And over the years, when we were 12, 13, 14, 15, we bought virtually every trick in the shop. They had uh, the most expensive trick was a $12 like watch vanishing chain, the metal thing. And I didn't buy one of those back then. I'm glad. Or I would have cut my fingers up. But uh, it's funny looking back on those first three tricks. The cups and balls is a classic historically. I, Other than playing around with this and showing a few people, I never did the cups and balls in my entire career. Not me. The Siberian chain escape, I used it a whole bunch way back then. And then when I was an adult doing an illusion show, I created a routine in which I escaped from ropes, chains, and uh, the Houdini Cullery escape, the one where you're in there like this. And I went to Ace Hardware and had them make me, out of heavy chain, a Siberian chain escape. You know, we, had, we put the rings in there. We, mashed them together, it got some nice padlocks, and I used that for two or three years in this rope chain pillory escape. And I got tired of finding that after every show, my wrists were all bruised because the girls would lock me in the chains and the ropes, and they would pull on it back and forth, and I was getting bruised, and I'm only in my 40s at that point. Going, this is crazy. Now I'm in my 70s, and I get bruised by just going, bam, you know, it's the time of life. Well, put away, so Siberian chain, uh, uh, what do you call it, Siberian chain escape, that's over. But then we come to the cut and restore rope. I had used the cut and restore rope since I was 12 years old. In thousands of shows, I have cut rope, string, twine. I can do it backwards, blindfolded. Eyes closed. I've even used ribbon like uh, florists use on the flowers. They tie them all up. There's a two-inch wide ribbon, and I bought spools of it, you know, 100 yards, 100 feet, whatever. And I've taken a 10-foot piece in, in certain shows, and I cut it and restore it. And I only do this. I, I cut it and restore it the end. I do not do 10 minutes with a rope, cut, restore, cut, restore, cut, restore. To me, that's redundant. Let me tell you a story about a little boy and a pony. Let me tell you a story again. Let me tell you a story again. You, you see what I'm getting at? Mm -hmm. I have seen people do great routines where they cut and restore the rope 22 times. Me, one time. The audience gets the point. Mm -hmm. That's just my opinion. So we, I will try not to get too opinionated while we're talking about this, but you asked me for the truth. So, Cups and Balls, Siberian Chain Escape, and Cut Restored Rope, my first three tricks. That was a that was a cool 17-year-old that hooked you up, because, I mean, that that was it. You were done. That's, I can't imagine. I mean, my, it's, a lot of people, was their first trick was something out of a cereal box that was cardboard and flimsy, but these are three tricks that could take you through your career. I mean, you got really lucky. Well, I tracked that fellow down. His name was Lynn Shimp. And uh, I tracked him down after I'd written about 25 books. I had several hardbacks out, Professional Magic for Children, Children Laugh Louder. And I tracked him down, got him on the phone, went to see him and his wife one Saturday morning, dressed all up, and I took him some of the books and said, this is what you started. Up, you know, it was a way of giving back. You know, saying thank you. 
And uh, I don't know where he is now. He, uh, I know somebody else who knows him, but he said, no, he they got divorced and he moved to Texas and we don't know where he is. So, what was his but, reaction uh, when you... What was his reaction when you gave him the books and you said, you started my career? Thank you. What was his reaction? Well, shook his head. He could, you know, couldn't believe it. I mean, how can, how can a 12-year-old become 40 years old and do thousands of shows and write these books and make these DVDs? You know, that's... Uh, it's hard to comprehend from his point of view. Right. Uh, so, but that's that's what happened. Uh, here, here's another thing that happened. My friend Marty and I would do little shows, you know, Cub Scouts, church, Sunday school class shows, this sort of thing. Uh, and we, I would do a trick, Marty would do a trick. Back and forth, back and forth was our format. And, uh, then one Saturday, I had like a big banquet at a church about three blocks from my house, and Marty got sick. He actually got sick, and I had to go and do the show when I was 15 years old, all by myself. I actually have a picture of, of it. Uh, I'm wearing like dark slacks, uh, dark sport coat, black shoes, and white socks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I was only 15 and I did not have any sense of fashion and I didn't have my wife to tell me how to dress so uh, I had to do his tricks that I'd never done I played with them uh, I got through it um, but here's what happened Marty and I were booked by a Cub Scout band with a blue and gold blend a blue and gold blend you know, <laughs> see and it was like 30 minutes away uh, from where we live. So his father drove us over there and left us there. We set up, did the show, and my father came back and got us. You know, 30-minute drive each way. And uh, as we were leaving, the Cub Master handed us a $5 bill. This is 19... Gee, 60 maybe. Yeah, we're like 14 years old. And we go, what? You can get money for this? So we started charging $5 a show. And then it became 8 10 I, I once got turned down for an $8 show. Wow. Wow. Golly. And, you, you know, you got an inflation, but you remember, we were kids. We were 14 years old, 15 years old. And uh, we started charging from then and, and we luckily got into the Georgia Magic Club, which was our local Atlanta IBM ring. And, uh, you know, we started going to monthly meetings with magicians, you know, who were older than we were, but they would perform and sometimes teach and explain. And then when I was about, uh, you know, 15, maybe the ninth grade, there was going to be a convention in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is about a three-hour drive from Atlanta. And uh, I decided to go. For some reason, Marty couldn't go, didn't want to go. I don't, I don't get it. I don't remember. He, he started drifting out of magic at, at some point. And uh, there was another guy in the magic club who wanted to go. So uh, another couple took this guy. I don't even remember his name. Uh, this other couple took us, and they, we, they booked us a room next to them. They, they said, that you can do anything you want to at the convention. You know, you can go see all the stuff. And eat here in the hotel, but just check in with us two or three times a day because we're supposed to be watching out for you. Mm-hmm. And so we did, and that was a, a wonderful experience. Uh, at the first Magic Convention, that was probably 1962, I'm thinking. Yeah, we were 15 slash 16 years old. And just, I mean, look at your shelves behind you. I'm looking at them right now. I mean, multiply that. By more dealers and more stuff like that. It was like we were in a candy shop and, you know, we had like 20 bucks to spend. I, I have no idea what I bought back then because I didn't know what to buy. <laughs> you know, you got to, as, as I grew up in magic, I started learning don't buy. Uh, one of my friends bought that uh, 
dancing handkerchief that does at first you held it with a cloth and it does all this when it came out it was $25 well that was he bought it played with it in the hotel room never ever used it mm. and I fortunately didn't buy it or maybe they sold out before I got the chance and I watched him and said like where am I going to use this I, I don't yeah. I don't know yeah no that happens it ends up in a junk drawer it happens a lot it was show, show, show. Uh, we didn't know how to get shows, but they came our way. They called and called our parents. We had some business cards printed and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, Cub Scouts, church shows, Qantas, a lot of Christmas parties. And then we got into Halloween carnivals. And uh, around that same time, when we were about the ninth, 10th grade, we went back to our old elementary school, and whereas when we were kids, we went to the haunted house in the school, and other people ran it, well, they let us run it. Nice. So we got the bowl of grapes, and they were supposed to be eyeballs, you feel, and all this stuff. So we ran the, the spook house and did stuff like that, because we were also into monsters, you know, the universal monsters, Wolfman, Dracula, Frankenstein. And uh, that night, they shut the carnival down at like 6.30. We'd run the thing from like 3.30 to 6.30 nonstop. And then they were in a big show in the school auditorium. And a magician was performing. He was actually a ventriloquist and magician. His name was Clem Fortner. He was the first real magician we ever met. And we saw him perform and went to talk to him afterwards. He invited us to the magic club. He invited us to his house. Um, uh, we became lifelong friends. Uh, when I was writing those first books and pamphlets, he would send me money and buy them. I'd mail him the book back or give it to him. And then uh, when he got into like his 75s and 80s, and I'd written about 50 books, I said, Clem, uh, you don't need to buy my books anymore. I'm just going to mail them to you. That's because, yeah. you know, you did things for me when I was a teen and uh, I can't ever repay that, you know, friendship, teaching me things, showing me stuff. So uh, I actually wrote a, uh, in case you don't know it, I've been writing these stories for about three years in the Linking Rank magazine, which is the IBM publication. And I wrote a story, I guess it was like last, um, last October of 22 about Clint Fortner. Uh, I've done a lot of uh, stories about people that I knew way back. Uh, I, I try to stay as much from my point of view as possible. In other words, what I actually saw, not hearsay. Uh, I do some research, but there's always a point or two to every story. And it's, uh, it's kind of like what I learned from that person. I just did one about Jack Channon. Uh, it taught me to uh, keep on pushing. That's basically, and pushing can mean pushing a handkerchief into a hiding place, or it can be pushing yourself forward to get shows, to do a better job. I mean, there's a lot of implications, but that was my June column just, you know, two or three weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, that's that's great advice. How many magicians have become stagnant in their careers and they're right. doing the same act for 20 years? Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I always, when I was doing a lot of birthday parties, I finally realized that, okay, if I go, if I go back to this group, all right, let's say I do Jerry's birthday party and two months later, his friend Randy has a birthday well, it's a lot of the same kids from their class. If I go back with that same show, they're going to kill me. They're going, oh, that's, that's the one where the rabbit does this. You know, they're going to know everything. So I developed a second show and later a third show, and I could rotate these A, B, and C shows. And I say, well, Mrs. Jones, where did you get my name? And she said, well, uh, Randy saw you at Jerry's birthday party, you see. So then I know, okay, don't do show A, because I keep records of every show.
show I do. So if it's the show I'm doing in a school all year long, let's call it the Lewis and Clark show. That's all I got to put down, an L and C. That's all I, I know exactly what that show is. But when I'm doing things like a birthday party that I just set up to do a special event, I write down all the tricks I did it. So if, if it comes back later, I go, wait a minute, they want me again next year. One, I look and I know what I did. So uh, uh, where did that come from? Yeah, that's awesome advice. Yeah. I've told Natalie, when I first started in Magic, a guy showed me his accounting stuff. He said, this is what you do. This is the questions you need to ask, which helped tremendously when I was a beginner. It only had a couple shows under my belt. But he wrote down every trick he did in the show. And we're doing 400 shows a year. And it's like, it's hard to even keep track, getting to the next show on time. So I'm like, you write it down. You keep track of it. We don't. We still don't. And But we change up our show. We don't have an A, B, and C show, but we can change and add a whole bunch of stuff to it. We have enough routines where it'll make it a different show. Yeah. Our Dove opening will be the same and our closing will be the same, but all the meat in the middle will be 100% different. Right. We can do that, but we never did write down every itemized detail of the show. I've heard tips and tricks about, you know, hey, this venue, there's 12 steps and you have to go around, so next time be there 10 minutes early because the load-in is difficult at this show, and you make a note in your contract. Great advice. We don't do it. Yeah. She does. She does a little bit of note taking now for yeah. certain venues. Yeah. Or I might do that, and then if I'm looking up and they rebook, and I look up the old contract, I'll see it. But I mean, yeah. If it's five years between when they booked last time and the next time they book, I'm not looking at the old contract because I don't have that. Yeah, because our know. prices have changed in five years. Right. Yeah. Um. What did you What did you and Marty call yourselves? Did you have a cool name? Like David and Marty. David, David and Marty, that's great. That's got a good ring to it. <laughs> uh, David comes first in the alphabet. You know, that was, uh, you, know, you know, that was when we were barely getting started. And uh, I remember we did a Explorer Scout convention because we were in the Explorer Scouts. And we performed about a, 30-minute act, and I had the milk pitcher, and I had one of those cones, and the way we were taught to do the milk pitcher is you pour the milk in the cone, and then when you've, when you've poured about half of it, you actually pour a little bit of milk that will drip out of the bottom to prove it's real. This is the worst possible advice. It gets milk on the stage. It's not real. Well, it can be real milk, but it's really chemical milk. It gets milk on the stage. So you still vanish the bulk of it, but it still gets milk on the stage. So we go off. We finish the show. We're back there backing away, and a guy comes and says, uh, Hey, you guys, you made a mess up on the stage. Here's a, here's a mop. Go out there and mop it up. And I turned to Marty, and I said, I'm not mopping it up. I'm the performer. I'm not the stagehand. And Marty went and mopped it up. And I thought about this many years later. I'm talking 50 years later. And I was wrong. I made the mess. So either I clean it up or I don't make a mess. Right. And you see, that experience taught me don't make a mess. In my school show career, I've done, I remember one December, I did 21 shows in one week, and that was school shows and Christmas parties at night and weekend. That's too many. Uh, but I don't make a mess. Uh, I, when I was doing a, a show about the ocean, you had to have some water, the ocean of magic. So I did the pouring the water in a, in a styrofoam cup and using slush powder. Mm -hmm. Okay. It congeals, then when it's over, you just throw it in a trash can. Of course, you don't throw it in a trash can where the children can see you. Right. Because they'll go and pull it out of the trash can. And that happened. I go, oh, Mr. Magician, you've got some jello in here. White jello. My point is, I started avoiding tricks that were messy. And virtually every liquid trick has the potential of being messy. The trick where you turn the silk into an egg. It's messy. 
when I was 14 or 15 doing a show by myself, I had a rice silk, which were expensive to me, over my table, had a glass on the table, did the egg, did the switch, went to crack the egg, I cracked it, and as I pulled it open to let the egg drop into the glass, it missed the glass and went beside the glass, on the outside of the glass, and into my rice silk. I didn't know what to do. I grabbed the four corners of silk, picked up the whole thing, ditched it, quote backstage or to the side, and when I got home with it later, it ruined my rice silk. You see what I mean? Yeah. Uh, messy things. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Mar- Marty was, I'm glad Marty went and cleaned that up. I'll have to tell him that next time I speak to him. Let him clean it up. Uh, and somewhere along the line, I learned my lesson. Uh, but I, I guess I was a 16-year-old in that moment, prima donna. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> I'm not cleaning it up. But that's how, that's how cool you are. We were doing doves, and we produced a dove at a school show in South Georgia, and she she was not into magic. She was helping me because she was my next-door neighbor, and it was convenient. Her kids came over to my house to play, and I treated them like my children. And uh, I produced a, a dove right at front center stage. Why would you have the microphone to do your job? So I produced a dove, and the dove pooped, and it fell right where I'm going to stand for the next 30 minutes. And she came and got the bird, and the microphone was not here. The music was still playing. And I whispered to her, I said, go get something and clean that up. She looked at me like, I'm not your maid. And she didn't do it. I don't know that we ever had a talk about this when it was over. But uh, in a, a year or two, she stopped helping me, and uh, it was just as well. Because I believe that an assistant has to do his or her best to make the magician look good, to cover up his mistakes if need be, and including wiping up the floor. I had to dodge around that poop for the rest of the show, left, right, just don't step in it. And the kids are pointing and, uh, it out the whole time. The kids know it's there. The kids are pointing to it the whole time. Yeah, yeah, they know it's there. Yeah. And, you know, she could have come out and wiped it up, one little wipe, and we could have made some funny joke about it. Uh, but she was doing the she was doing the part that I did with Marty. Right. I'm the performer. I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. Natalie has to clean up our poop. We have one bird um, that I produce, and every time he gets out of the load chamber, he just... Let's go. And he said, I'm done. Now I can Now I can let yeah, go. It's and become it's, habit at this point. It's a little annoying. but <laughs> We can do three shows in a day. And as soon as I produce him, I show him to the audience and he just poops. It's He doesn't have to go. He just does it. That's part of his routine now. Yeah, apparently. So uh, I, we just say clean up on all three. And Natalie gets paper towels and cleans it up. And we just keep going. Can you get some little diapers to go on I don't yeah, know. Right? <laughs> that would make life easier, wouldn't it? But who's going to change the diaper? It's easier to... Wipe it up. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, so, I mean, performers that work by themselves, I mean, confetti and liquid drinks, I just, I feel bad. I did confetti at a birthday party before Natalie, mm-hmm. and I, I studied under Rocco. We, I went to Rocco's house and, and worked with him. You know, he's got glitter and confetti and all this stuff, and it looks really cool. And then I had a confetti bomb at the end of the show, I think a square circle. I was, like, 15, 17 years old. Square circle and the finale silk was a burst of confetti. I'm taking pictures of all the kids, and everybody's getting sent to the backyard for cake. And the mom, before I'm packed up, comes out with a dust buster, and she's... I hate the sound of a vacuum cleaner, number one. And number two, I felt horrible that the mom was didn't trust me to clean it up. And she had to do that right away, and I got rid of it day one. I just couldn't do it anymore. But now I have her. She cleans up my poop. She works on the liquid tricks. But she does that, and she routines it to do it in between the next trick, when she has breaks, she knows how to scale the show. But we don't really do... When we had a contract with Pepsi, I had to do a lot of liquid magic. Oh, yeah. And I never wanted to do liquid magic, but when I started working for Pepsi, I'm like, I gotta use liquid magic. And um, 
she worked out the behind the scenes. Well, I have a break at this point where I can grab this and go to the bathroom and clean this. And yeah, she does stuff behind the scenes that's awesome because I don't even you do that. I didn't know you did that because I'm talking <laughs> to the audience and I'm so focused on doing my cut and restored routine 700 times. <laughs> <laughs> well, J.B. Bobo, the guy who wrote the modern coin magic, but he was a pioneer in school shows and his wife, Lillian, did not really like to be on stage. So she brought things out, took things away, and during his 45-minute show, she packed up the whole show. When he finished his last trick, he can hand it to her, it goes in the suitcase, bam, it's closed, they're out the door. Wow. The next so, uh, yeah, a really good assistant can do a whole lot of good in many, many ways. Uh, uh, let me tell you about a one messy trick, and then we'll move on from there. One of my friends work, works cruise ships, and... He told me that a, a magician that he worked with on the ship, he's a ventriloquist. So this magician closed his show with the uh, snowstorm in China. You know what I'm talking about, the confetti. It's a, it's a beautiful effect, especially if you have good lighting and good music and a good story. He talked about the snow globe. And when he was a little child, he wished he could climb inside the snow globe and the music starts playing and the lights are just right. Maybe some blue lighting or something and all of a sudden, boom. And you know, he's in the middle of the snow, snowstorm. The audience goes nuts about it. They love it. Uh, even to the point of a standing ovation. Nice. When the show is over on the cruise ship and the audience is left, the cleanup crew, 10 minutes, vacuuming the whole stage. And if he's got to do, they have to do it between shows if he's doing two in a row. They hate him. Oh, no. They hate him. Yeah. Because of that work that they have to do. Yeah. Yeah. My solution is, I love the trick, don't make a mess. Yeah, yeah, you don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. Some, some uh, like FISM people, they put down a tarp and then they just pick it all up. But you can, not with the confetti. Cards, throwing cards and different things, you can do that. But you can't do it with confetti because no. it gets in the cracks of places. You can't, you can't find it. You right. won't be able to get it all. You know when a magician's been on stage. Well, uh, when, when my wife and I married 54 years ago, it was back when they were still throwing rice. Mm. For three weeks... On our honeymoon, we were both finding rice embedded in our hair. Oh, no. Here's more rice. I was never one for doing the rice bowls because it's too messy. I did it, I did it as a young teen, uh, but back to messy. Uh, let, let me give you a quick idea of what happened. By the time I was a uh, senior in high school, I was doing a lot of shows on my own, the one-man show, uh, occasionally an assistant if we had to do something bigger, borrow a chair suspension example. Um, and then in college, I laid low for the first year because I was told that the time when most people drop out of college is the fall quarter of your freshman year. Oh, wow. And that was not going to happen to me. Uh, I know people that did happen to. So after my freshman year in journalism, studying journalism, you know, writing, publishing books, articles, magazines, uh, things got a little bit easier. And my mom started booking shows for me at home. I was 60 miles away from Atlanta to Athens at the University of Georgia. And I would go home and do shows. And then I started picking up some at the University of Georgia and went back and forth. And uh, a lot of school carnivals in the fall, festivals. You know, I, way back then in 68 or 69, I remember two occasions doing five schools a day. And at one school, at two of the schools, I had to do two shows. Seven wow. shows in one day at five locations. And uh, like the idiot I was at, at one point, I was doing an illusion at each. I, I, I worked out a deal one time. Let's call it school A and B, and they're 10 miles apart. 
So I took a girl production to school A, and then I went to school B and took a sword box. So I did a 10 o'clock at school B, back to school A, did the girl production. You know, that was a big thing in the show. Then back over to school B, did another sword box show, back to school A, did the girl production show. My dad arrived there. We put that in his car, station wagon. He took it home. My sister and I went back to school B and did a third show at the end of the day with the sword box. And my dad came back and we loaded it up. And, wow. you know, doing that, maybe this is like, my, yeah, I was, I was like 21, too, in college. I probably made $400 that day. If you translate it to the money now, it'd be 2500 3000 So I did get paid for it. But when that was over, I said, no, 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 not again. Not again. Anyway, the point is, I got to where I was doing quite a lot of shows in college and right after that. But this is now 1968, and there was something hovering over every young male's head. And you know what it was, right? Mm-hmm. Tell me. Uh, Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Bingo, Vietnam. So, um, if you quit school in 1968, you quit or you graduated, as I did, you get two weeks and you get your draft notice, you'd be in the United States Army. Mm-hmm. Unless, you did do so- unless you did something. Well, uh, I stayed in ROTC, all through college. I'm not a military person, but that's what I did. And uh, so when I graduated, I was commissioned a second lieutenant in the United States Army. But I didn't go on active duty because I stayed for grad school. And they approved it. I got into grad school. So that kept me out another almost two years from June of 68 till February of 70. And Vietnam was beginning to to back down, wind down. But um, I went into the Army. I was married by then. My wife went with me. There was no married housing. We lived off post, three miles from Fort Gordon in Augusta, Georgia. And I had to go through officer training school for the signal corps i was in signal corps yeah one of one of my jobs would have been to be a foreign observer and call in where to shoot where to drop the bombs which would be on my head which would be on his head yeah right here i'm here yeah and this nice portfolio and and i'm talking about a, a a big notebook it's still here somewhere with plastic pages Clippings, photos, lists of a place that I have performed. And I went to the special services officer about six weeks into my Army uh, officer training thing for Signal Corps, showed it to him. Well, he was a theater guy. His dad ran movie theaters. He liked anything entertainment. He said, Oh, be great if you could work for us. I said, it would be great if I could work for you. That's right. He sent me to headquarters. They looked, they went through the whole thing. He called me about a week later. He said, Lieutenant Ginn, we have got you assigned to Fort Gordon Special Services. When you finish your course, you're coming to work here for me. We had a, we had two movie theaters. A, an entertainment group that played music, uh, just all kind of activities. A, a play group, they put on plays, they put on shows, concerts. And uh, there's only there's only one catch. There's always a catch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had to pass officer basic course. I had to pass the course. I had to take the final exam and pass which was a lot of radio technical stuff, which I did not like. That means I hated it. Mm-hmm. And I studied, and I studied, and I passed with a 71 on a 100 scale. Oh. I, got a, I got a D minus. 
but wow. I passed. And I worked for special services there for two years. And uh, I, I, the music group there, when I started, was doing a show every Monday for the incoming troops. We'd have like one or two hundred new Signal Corps guys come in every Monday and then have to have orientation. One o'clock every Monday. So my group, my musical group, I went with them. They dwindled from four guys down to three to two to one. They took them all away. And the colonel said to me, my colonel who got me in there, he said, what are we going to do? I said, well, I took another guy and he and I, he and I played and sang guitars for a while. You, you play for 15 minutes and then you tell them about what you can do on camp on, on the post for free because of special service. Ride horses, swimming pool, uh, this, that, boom. So then the guy who was playing guitars with me, he got shipped out. The colonel said, what are we going to do? And I said, why don't you let me do a magic show for him every Monday? I'll do a 15-minute show and spend the other 15 minutes telling him all this stuff. He said, okay. Well, see, by that time, I had, I had live doves at the fort. I kept them out of the, one of our theaters. Boy, they made a mess, and I never cleaned it up. <laughs> um, so I took my performing clothes. They stayed at, at Fort Gordon all the time. And every Monday, I'd eat some kind of light lunch at 12 o'clock, put on my clothes at 12.15. They're in the office. And because the colonel said, I don't, I don't want you to ever do a show in uniform. It'll turn the guys off. Always dress up in your show clothes. I had this bright blue sport coat, red tie, white shirt, striped pants, and beetle boots. And uh, I did a show. I guess that was that went on for, uh, I did a show every Monday, every Monday, about 50 weeks a year for about a year and five months, year and four months. And. I could switch tricks out. I, I use the basic open and close and use it, produce the doves, banish the doves, but I could do anything in the middle that I wanted to. So it was developing. And then I came out of the army. That sounds like a Bing Crosby uh, movie. That doesn't sound real. That sounds like a Bing Crosby movie. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Just about. Well, I came out of the army and I went into the school show. The first month I was out, I had three paying school shows. And six TV appearances, which were free. Basically, it was they were to say, I'm out of the Army, I'm available now. Mm -hmm. And that kind of worked. And I got on the phone. And I called and called. And I called every school in Atlanta. Wow. Every school. I had the book. I had the educational directory. And a year later, I had 53 paid shows and maybe two TV shows the same month. So you see, in wow. one year, I got down to business. Yeah. And I, I was networking before I knew what networking meant. Mm -hmm. And people all these years later go, oh, you're, you were networking. Well, I guess. I was trying to make a living out of magic. Right. My wife worked a job that was not a high-paying job. And... Uh, one thing led to another, and then I did school shows for 49 years. Wow. That's amazing. Then, Dude, we have... The pandemic came along. Yeah. We have, we have like, 15 yep. minutes. I want to know about this illusion show. Can you tell me about your illusion show? How long did you do an illusion show for? Because I don't know you as an illusion show guy. Um, I took it all the way to Abbott's one year. 19, 1988, I took it to Abbott's with four people. And we did it on the matinee. We, they, I did the whole matinee. Sub trunk, sword basket, Houdini, Houdini pillory escape, uh, dollhouse, and lots of things in between. We had a, a 13 trick opening with flowers, canes, candles, sponge balls, more flowers, and the live rabbit. And then I introduced the girls who were my assistants. Uh, they were all girls from my church, and uh, they were all dancers, so they knew how to dress and how to walk and move. And uh, we did that. We did the full evening show from about nineteen eighty 
late 90s. Uh, but you see, when I was doing the illusion show, I was still doing school shows. Right. So do eight school shows this week, pick up a trailer, bring it home, load up the illusion show, sometimes by myself, and then Saturday morning, everybody arrives at my house or we meet somewhere and I'll get in the car and we drive four hours and set up for two hours and go over everything and then do a two-hour show and pack up, eat something and go home or spend the night and go home the next day. Um, I, I had a promoter who was booking it for a while and uh, that changed and then I started doing it myself. But you see, he was trying to live two lives. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm writing books and pamphlets at the same time and doing mail order. So it, it really got to the point. Uh, those girls who were helping me all grew up. That's what keeps happening. They all grow up. The, the teenagers I've used in my mail order business for my neighborhood and from church, they all grew up. Yeah. Some of them are married now with two or three kids. Yeah. One of them had four. They grew up, get married, they, they moved to Detroit, it's, you know, it, and I'm still, you know how many people I've taught how to do the sub-trunk? Like six. <laughs> well, I, back when I was doing it, I could do it blindfolded, I, you know, because I've done so much, but I have to teach a new person uh, all this different stuff, sword basket. Um, we had about seven illusions in there at one point. And it was a lot of fun. Um, I did get a lot of experience. I never made any money from it. It just never went far enough. Or, um, uh, when I was trying to have high schools promoted, they'd rather sell candy or wash cars, you know, with girls in tank tops and shorts. Yeah and sell a $5 ticket to a magic show. So, Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, and that's all they have to do. You're doing all the work. All they have to do is sell a ticket. Yeah. 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 We've but been there. Would. We've been there. So I lost my dad when I was still just doing birthday parties. I mean, I, yeah, I was only a birthday party magician. I was doing restaurants and birthdays, and my dad was so proud of me. I was 20 years old, and he was just tickled pink that I was making... $150 in a birthday party. He just couldn't. 45 minutes? You make more than a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Your dad got to see you succeed at a whole nother level. He got to see you do this illusion show, uh, make yeah. $400, $3,000 in a day. How proud were your parents of you? I want to live through this. How proud were they? Yeah, they were very proud. Uh, two times in my life, I worked at a convention where I'd lecture, perform, and sell things, you know, like that, and FCM. IBM or whatever, there were two. Uh, my dad told me what his annual salary was when I was in the ninth grade. So I had that knowledge inside of me. And on two occasions in one week, I took in more than his annual salary. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, there's the differences in year and inflation. Right. But, uh, you know, but nobody could see my friend Marty. Uh, his parents did not want him to spend money on magic tricks. They didn't see an end. They didn't see that it was a means to the end, to an end. And my parents encouraged me, especially when I was earning my own money with the magic shows, putting the money back into the business. You know, because very seldom did I buy things that I didn't use. I mean, I, I bought things years past that I put on the shelf for four years, and then I took something out and said, now it's going to fit in the shelf, and used it 350 times in one school year. So, um, I don't know what kind of time we've got left, but let me go in another direction. we got nine minutes. Yeah, make sure you hit your new, brand new book, and make sure you hit that website, please. Well, we're going to talk about GetMagicShop.com. GetMagicShop.com. It's my last name, G-I-W-N, MagicShop.com. And my name is pronounced Jen, not Jim. I don't drink alcohol. I don't go there. So it's Jen, David Jim. In fact, I used to say 
Since Vin is the name, magic is the game. You ask me again. Tell you the thing. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So, GetMagicShop.com. Um, what I've done with this new website, which is only two years old, is that it has the products. It has 300 products. That's not what I'm talking about. I have put in it things that didn't fit in my other books or some things that were published before the book came out. I have in that website over 300 things to look at and read for free. I have a dozen free books that are out of print, but you can read them there. I have a dozen, uh, something like 65 articles I've written in magazines and whatnot that all make different kinds of points. They're all free to read. You just go to the bottom of the home page. Scroll down to the bottom. Here are all these categories. Strange pictures, interesting videos. Uh, a lot of my mentors are in there uh, with videos and, th and things to read. So I, I've tried to do that as a give back type thing. And of course, you can see things like my big book. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story about Kids Show Magic Compendium. I started a book in 2005, and I worked on it a little bit back and forth. It was a book about magic with animals. Every trick in the show is going to be with animals. Every trick in the book, that is. Well, it got back and forth, and I'm doing shows, I'm doing videos, it's a lot easier to do a, a DVD video than it is to write a book, but I, I had to write those too. Well, one day I woke up and said, why don't I put all the stuff that, that I've written in magazines and these other places are routines I've never published in one, put in one book. But wait a minute, I can't do that and the animals book. They're two, they're big projects, they're too big and I came to a point in the road where I've got to go left or right, the fork in the road. Mm -hmm. And what shall I do? And I chose to do Kids Show Magic Compendium. It ended up being five pounds. Makes a great doorstop. <laughs> but there are five, 544 pages, um, 900 color photos, 130 routines. And this is what I've done to make a living for the last 30 years. That's what's in this book. Wow. So once this out and got promoted and it's, it's still available, we did a one-time printing of 1,300 copies. I've got a couple hundred left. You can order it on the site. Um, I picked up and started working on the animal book again. And the animal book is completely turned in. It is the corrections are being made now. I mean, it was already laid out, and this is what it looks like. Children love animals. It's called Children Love Animals, but notice the uh, subtitle. Captivating Kid Show Magic. Captivating Kid Show Magic, because it is a magic book. And, and the whole idea of the book is, if you put any animal trick in your show, kids will love you. Yep. doesn't have to be a live dove or a rabbit. A picture of a rabbit, a puppet, a story, a toy, anything animal-related draws kids to you like a magnet. So they're captivated. As soon as you say, I want to tell you about my dog, you've got them. How many of you have a cat? Now you're going to a cat trick. So that's what the whole book is about, and it's 512 pages. It's just uh, 30 pages or so short of this one, but it'll still weigh five pounds because I've used 80-pound glossy stock paper and a heavy cover. I mean, if you drop this on your foot, it's going to hurt. <laughs> one, one guy complained. He said, David, that book is too big. I can't read it in bed. <laughs> hey, I bring it to you. You can eat or not eat. What can I say? Yeah, you can't do it all for him. You can't yeah, do it all for him. That's right. David, um, I got a question before we wrap things up. I have been told in the past that you are the guy that invented the Coca-Cola from the jacket sleeve. Is is that you? Is that true? Or is that a wives' tale? Where you take the jacket off. Yeah, you, you show your hands empty. and you. Oh, sorry. Let me remove my jacket for this next trick. And as you remove your jacket, you produce a Coke. Is that your trick? Did you invent that? That is me, yes. I invented that in 1966, 
in the dorm at the University of Georgia. Later on in the 80s, I showed it at every lecture I did all across the country, probably over 100 lectures. I showed it to everyone. I carried a Coke bottle with me, filled it with Dr. Pepper, and I carried the jacket with me. It's a, always a nylon jacket. And evidently, some people showed it to other people who showed it to other people. And then those other people, at least one of them, and I spoke to him, put it on his videotape or DVD. Uh, he didn't know who had created it, but it was me. And, uh, I fooled the guys in the dorm a whole bunch of times with it. Dude, it's and, a uh, it's a fantastic trick, and I learned it third hand, and um, I, I didn't know who to credit with it. And over my years of research and magic, somewhere I've been told it's a David Ginn trick, and I'm like, one day i got to ask him. That's well, a- it's in several of my books, and it's on at least one, if not two of my DVDs. So, okay, uh, yeah. Fantastic, man. Fantastic. Well, uh, one more story for you. I told a friend of mine, Erwin Royce. Do you know him? He's the world's smallest magician. He said, uh, yeah, he said, David Ginn, he said, uh, he performed for my wife when she was in school. She has fond memories of you coming to her school and performing. Aww. So that dude, you, I mean, people remember you 20 years, 30 years later. And, and you know that Erwin is a short guy, right? 1980. I had a booth, a display booth at the IBM convention in New Orleans, and I was selling these four-foot giant magic wands, three and a half inches diameter, and they were filled with spring snakes. Five snakes jump out of the wand. I had them on display. Theater room open. Erwin Roy walks in. He looks around, and he saw those wands, and he made a beeline for my booth. That's when I met him. That's awesome. I've got to have that one because it's taller than I am. <laughs> and then I said, but you unscrew it here and five snakes jump out of it and the kids go nuts. Uh, that, that, is in, that trick is in the new animal book. Everything I've ever done with an animal, live, dead, uh, Jeff McBride even popped in and gave me to a, a link to the first publication of a spring animal. You know, you know, Rocky Raccoon? Right, right. Jeff McBride found it in a 1500 book, and so that's in the book with thanks to Jeff McBride. Wow. I bet um, they didn't say in the book from I mean, 1500s the smell that that spring raccoon would have. <laughs> in the 1500s, that thing probably... It's <laughs> the smell of paper. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Anyway. Paper and ink. That's funny, that's funny. Dave, again, thank you so much for being on here, man. You are a legend in magic. I am so thankful I got to meet you and got to got to experience your magic live in person. You lecturing for everybody, performing for people, and doing that special trick for my daughter. You've you've done it, man. You've done it all. You've uh, you've made a living doing magic, and that's all we can ask for. If I have helped anybody along the way, I'm sincere about this. I'm happy because. That's what I think I'm here for, to do things, write the th- things up, maybe shoot a videotape, a DVD. But the whole point is not to make money, it's to help people. And if I help another performer and he or she goes out and does a show for kids, it's me doing the show for the kids vicariously. And I can stay here at home and be happy about that. God so, bless you. You're awesome. You're awesome. I think you're one of the most likable magicians in the world. I mean, you go to Blackpool and you are loved. Everybody loves you over there in Europe. Over here in America, I've never... People talk behind people's backs. I've never heard a bad thing ever about you. You've done it right. You've done it. We love you. Everybody loves you. I don't know what else I can well, thank say. thank you. You're awesome, David Ginn. Um, one more it's thing. Uh, David Ginn, magic.com. Check out his new magic book and right. all those other props. No, no sorry. I, my boss is helping. Yes, ginmagicshop.com. Ginmagicshop.com, yeah. sorry. I even have it on my notes here. I wrote it down. Ginmagicshop.com. And um, check out his other books because uh, just not just these new books he's put out. Right. The other books are still great. Uh, DVDs, all kinds of props, and all that free stuff on his website. Ginmagicshop.com. No. He'll get it right eventually, yeah. David. <laughs> 
magicshop.com. Ganmagicshop.com. <laughs> David Gann, I love you. Before I mess up anything else, one more thing left for us to say. We'll, we'll see, see you, you next week. week. Check us out online at WesIsley.com and Patreon.com forward slash Wes underscore Isley for behind-the-scenes videos, blooper videos, never-before-seen footage, discounts on merchandise, magic trick tutorials, and more. That's Wes Isley spelled W-E-S-I-S-E-L-I.